Well, we have in our first reading from St. Paul to Titus, um, one clergyman speaking to another one. And uh, St. Paul has left Titus on this island Crete. It's in the Mediterranean. Probably a lot of us can relatively visualize it if we think of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it's, a, it's a quite a big island, and uh, Christianity has always flourished there, and it still flourishes there very strongly. Orthodox, unfortunately, not uh, Roman Catholic Christianity, but or- Orthodox uh, Christianity very, has a very strong presence in Crete to this very day. So 2,000 years of apostolic Christianity has been there. Um, and it started, though, with some holy uh, priests, essentially, is, is what's, what we're looking at here. St. Paul says to Titus, Titus is basically, he's empowered with the fullness of uh, the, the sacramental the grace of holy orders, and he's going to go and he's going to appoint priests. Now, this uh, passage here uses the word bishop. There's a kind of uh, a lot of historical issues and questions that you can ask of this passage, but I'm going to kind of give you the long story short here. The word bishop was used in a more... Um, a non-specific, non-technical sense at this time, early uh, in the first century A.D. It would later come to be used specifically for um, the third tier of the church's hierarchy. So you've got deacons, then you've got presbyters, and then you've got bishops. And so it would very quickly come to be used very precisely for that third tier. But in the first century, it, it could be used for what we would today call a presbyter or a priest, and then, or a bishop, it was kind of interchangeable. So it was more of a looser title. So really, what uh, Saint Paul is speaking about here, he's not talking about um, bishops as we know bishops, meaning these guys on the top, like Bishop Matano or Bishop Clark. What he's speaking about is really the, the second tier guys, presbyters, um, who uh, uh, eventually in history came to be known as priests or called priests. Um, and. Uh, just another little historical point before I get to the kind of exhortatory element of the homily. Um, they are to be married only once, and uh, they have they're to have believing children who are not to be accused of licentiousness or rebellious. Um, and a bishop, meaning a presbyter, they're interchangeable here in this context. As God's steward, must must be blameless. Uh, not arrogant, not irritable, not a drunkard, so forth and so on. He gives this list of very high standards for virtues. Um, again, a little historical background on celibacy, okay, and married priesthood. Um, the classic reading, I'll share with you the classic reading of this text, which I, after many years of looking at all the ins and the outs of these questions of a celibate priesthood versus a married priesthood and all these questions, uh, the classic reading I find very convincing is this. I think there's a lot of historical evidence uh, strong, strong arguments to buttress what I'm about to say is that the, pre- the precise reason why they're to be married only once has to do with actually this idea of celibacy. Okay, um, Kind of a little counterintuitive at first because you're talking about married, but then you're talking about celibacy, so what, do, what am I talking about? Uh, if you think about it, why would this be something that's special for um, priests to be married only once because, uh, I mean, Christ from the beginning, he taught that, you know, you, you can't be divorced and re- no Christian can be, have successive, uh, spouses that are alive. So he's not, he's not talking about polygamy, you know, cause that's, everybody knows that obviously Christians are not polygamists. He's not talking about successive, you know, 
married, divorced, married, divorced. He's not talking about that either because that holds not just for, for presbyters or for priests, but it holds for every Christian. What he's speaking about here is he's saying um, that the priest can only be married once in the sense of when the, if the spouse dies. Okay? And that from time immemorial was a requirement for holy orders. So uh, what, what Paul is saying is that, say there's a guy and he's married and his wife dies. Okay? If he remarries a second time, Okay, which of course is lawful for any Christian to do that. He's disqualified from holy orders; he can't be ordained. Okay, so and that's a that's been a law within the Christian traditions. It's true for Roman Catholics, and it's also true for Orthodox uh, from time immemorial. And we know the Orthodox their their priests marry uh, if they're married before ordination. They can't marry; they can't change their marital status one way or the other after they're or, ordained. But if they marry before they're ordained, they can be ordained. Okay, But if their wife dies and they marry a second time, that disqualifies them from holy orders. And so the question is, why, why is that? Well, uh, again, it would be too much to get into, but the implication here is that the fact that the person that the guy remarried is a sign that he cannot remain continent. Okay, Continent meaning refraining from sexual relations. Because, believe it or not, in the ancient church, uh, when the man was ordained, if his wife died, okay, that's one thing, but if his wife was still alive, okay, both he and his wife agreed to actually give up marital relations. All right, And so there was actually such a thing as celibacy within marriage. Very interesting. Okay, And so the whole qualification of not ordaining people who had married a second time after the death of the first spouse was there because that whole idea of if he marries a second time, the thought is, well, he certainly can't remain continent. Okay, so that, that's actually the whole rationale behind this. It's very fascinating when you get into it and look at it. So in the ancient church, you actually had priests who normally how, would, how it would work would be a guy, uh, you know, and his, uh, his wife, they'd marry when they were very young. Uh, we're talking when they were 16 years old sometimes. Okay. Sometimes the women were 14. Sometimes the guy was 18. They they would marry that young. Okay. By the time they're in their late 20s, they've had five children. Probably two of them died. You know, maybe they had seven children. Four of them died. It was really this was a common scenario. Okay. And so then by the time they're in their 30s and in their 40s, they're actually looking again. This is a very common pattern in the ancient church. They're actually almost looking to become like a monk and a nun. And their kids are starting to grow up and they're kind of on their own. They're financially independent. They've got their trade or whatever it is that they've uh, embraced. And uh, by the time they're in their mid-40s, they're kind of living with each other within marriage but in a celibate manner. And they're espousing to a monastic life but within marriage. And then the bishop goes around and he sends his deacons out to hunt for these guys like this. And they grab them and then they ordain them. And so then there, that's, that was a very typical scenario for ordination in the ancient church. And what started happening is the East and the West diverged. So in the West, okay, what started happening was you get these priests out in the country parishes and you can't keep track of them. And next thing you know, they're, they're not keeping up that ancient discipline of maintaining celibacy within marriage. Okay. And so it becomes a little bit difficult to look after all of this kind of stuff. And so they say, okay, look, from now on, we're only going to ordain single men. 
So that became the Western practice. Okay. In the East, they did this thing. They kind of had a compromise. It's actually less pure in the East. The Western practice is more pure and actually, in a certain sense, more true to the original apostolic practice. In the East, what they started doing was saying, well, you really can't keep track of all of these guys, whether or not, you know, you know, put, what are you going to put a camera in their bedroom or something like that, you know, make sure that they're maintaining continence with their spouse. It becomes ridiculous, you know. So they say, okay, look, they're going to have relations. And so we, we relax that expectation that they're actually going to refrain from marital relations, these two spouses, for priests, but not for bishops. For bishops, we only ordain bishops who are already monks. Okay, and of course, as part of the monastic life is, is celibacy. So that's how it's done in the East and in the West. So it's very interesting to see both practices go back to this more primitive apostolic reality, but they kind of negotiated their way to, to being true to it, authentic to it in, in two different ways. But in any event, I'd say that that's kind of just a side historical point. Um, what we see here is the, the priest as, as a high standard. He's blameless. Oh my gosh, you know, blameless. And then it's not just blameless, like free from sin, but there's got to be positive virtue. So you go through all of these virtues, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast. And he's got to be able to teach with sound doctrine and then refute those. So he's got to be an intellectual as well. I mean, it's a really, it's a really big um, calling. And uh, St. Paul says, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. So the, the priest is always supposed to be this kind of alternative little version of Jesus in the world. And of course, we know I fall short of it, priests fall short of it all the time. And of course, sometimes in a very scandalous way, um, you know, fall short of it. These guys ordained, they should have never been ordained. They get into some kind of sexual sin or whatever it is, and it's like they, these people should never have been ordained. Um, but let's thank God, though, for the many priests. And I know in my, in my life's journey, the many priests are very holy. I know my first spiritual director, Jesuit priest, my seminary, very holy man, and how awesome that is to have that. You know, I, I get really, it's t you're tempted to lose um, uh, faith like in human beings or something because you see fail human failure so much. It's the majority story. Uh, the majority report is people doing stupid stuff. And you say, what the heck, why did he do that or she do that? And, and so it's so refreshing and it is possible. We should never, ever lose the optimism, the possibility of someone living a life like, like Jesus. Of course, we're never going to be free from uh, venial sin. That's not possible for human beings to do that. None of us is the Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, none of us is Jesus Christ identically. But we can come to a place where we're free of mortal sin, certainly. We can come to a place where we're free of fully deliberate venial sin, uh, such that uh, the, the venial sins we're kind of working on to get rid of uh, in our life are uh, more through weakness. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of areas that we're improving on. And more than that, it's, it's someone who is seeking positive virtue in their life. It's totally possible. It's possible. And it's so refreshing when we see that actually realized in a human being's life. But it's really not just for clergy. We go to our psalm today, and it says, Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? That's the call for everybody, to ascend to, to the Lord in heaven, to ascend his holy mountain, so to speak. And it's those whose hands are sinless, whose heart is clean, who desires not what is vain. That's the call for all of us. All of us are called to that holy mountain, Christ says in the gospel, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter in the kingdom of heaven. 
so holiness is the vocation for all Christians, not just for clergy. Clergy have to, you know, be exemplified in a special way, of course. But it's for all of us. And it is possible. And how refreshing to, to have an optimism that it's possible. Uh, how tiring it is for the pessimist to say, oh, this, you know, you know how it is. It's human nature. They're going to do this and this is how people are. How, how cynical, how depressing of a view on life. But how refreshing, alternatively, to say, like, hey, we can be good. It's possible. Um, and here's just a, I'll leave you with this thought here. Jesus in our gospel, okay, the key to, I think he gives us the key to holiness. He talks about forgiveness. He talks about forgiveness. So it's not that we're holy in the sense that we've never sinned in our life, okay? But God gives us second chances and second chances and second chances and second chances indefinitely. Just like we're called to forgive as long as the person says, I'm sorry, so also for us. God forgives us so long as we say we're sorry. And in that process of knowing God's forgiveness and being able to give that to others, that, my brothers and sisters, is the way to climb up that holy hill uh, so that we can be truly holy with the Lord forever.